Oh, a number of years ago, uh, Pokemon Go came out. I uh, don't know whether you remember it, but it was the, uh, the first in a line of kind of augmented reality games where you could look at your phone and see things which you wouldn't be able to see with the naked eye. Uh, for those who became addicted to it, those things kind of seemed very, very real, but in reality, they actually weren't there. For everyone else, they would look around the place and, um, and they didn't see them. You needed your phone to be able to see them. Uh, the things that they were seeing existed in the virtual world, but they didn't exist in the actual world. And for those in our culture who are opposed to faith, and they're opposed to faith in God, they would see Pokemon Go and faith having a lot in common. Um, God really isn't there. And those who think he is there are imagining it. They might even say it's, faith is some kind of augmented reality where it's not actually real, but people believe that it is. But I want to suggest to you this morning that faith uh, is a little bit like um, Pokemon Go, but not like that. We, we kind of maintain almost the opposite of Pokemon Go. Uh, it's not that we, we see things that aren't there. Our issue is that we are blinded. Sin has blinded us so that we don't see what is there. God's, God exists, but sin and rebellion have obscured him. It isn't that we don't have the truth about God. As Romans 1 says, our issue is that we suppress the truth about God. And so it raises the whole question, and I think this comes up reasonably often, how do we know that God is true? How do we prove that God is true? Well, questions about God, I think, fall into at least two categories. I want to throw these two out to you to to get us started. Questions about God can uh, fall into the category of of existence. Is he actually there? But that's that's not the only category that I think questions about God uh, fall into because I think the, the next category is God's character. It's not just, does he truly exist, but is he true? Is he trustworthy? What is he actually like? I remember uh, watching a, um, a nature doco with uh, David Attenborough, and he came up with this argument against the existence of God. He said that there was a particular type of animal that only operated in a very, very unhealthy way for everyone else, and he said that just shows that God doesn't exist. And I sat there watching the, uh, the show, and I, I had this thought pretty quickly. I just thought, okay, uh, David Attenborough, you just... It's David, isn't it? It's not Richard. David. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I, I had this thought. I thought, okay, you've just switched from a scientific argument to a theological argument. All right? Because now you're actually saying something about the kind of God that God is. And you're really saying... You, you can't... Saying something about the kind of God that God is doesn't say that he doesn't exist. It merely just says that you don't like him. You don't like a kind of God like that. And that's really what David Attenborough was saying. Is he's saying, I don't like a God like that, so he mustn't be real. And so you have these two kind of key categories. I'm not saying they're the only ones, but you have these two key categories of questions about God. Is he actually there and is he true? Is he righteous? Is he trustworthy? Now, there are lots of good arguments that I could put forward for each of these questions, and that would be abundantly helpful for us, but I want to flag something with you this morning. And I want to flag this with you. 
If you want to close the deal on whether God is true or not, then the way you tackle it needs to be in keeping with who God is and who you are. If you want to close the deal on whether God is true or not, then the way you tackle it needs to be in keeping with who God is and who you are. Here's the bottom line. Arguments won't get you there. They just won't. I remember watching a debate on the resurrection between perhaps the world's most foremost, the world's foremost atheist at the time and a Christian with a Christian studies class that I was teaching in my former life. And the atheist agreed with 90% of what the Christian put forward for the evidences of the resurrection. At the end of the lesson, my student said to me, why doesn't Anthony Flew become a Christian, sir? It's a good question. But a flag that they understood the main way people determine that God is true is by reason. Now, reason is very, very, very important. In fact, you'd say it's essential, but reason doesn't close the deal. James K.A. Smith puts it this way. I mentioned this a number of weeks ago. People are not just brains on a stick. We're not just intellects. There's much more to us than that. There's something far more fundamental to who we are and by consequence who God is. Okay. That's one heck of an intro, isn't it? Are you going okay? Let's take a breather for a moment. There's some deep stuff there, and that's actually what we're going to be dealing with today. So if you've got your Bibles, I'd love you to turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 30 today. John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus is talking to the Jewish uh, religious leaders. John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne, John the Baptist, that is, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. This is so controversial. He's saying to them that they don't know God the Father. His form you have never seen And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Who is? Jesus. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? 
So what we're looking at here today is how does Jesus work through things with the Jews? How does he tell them uh, you can prove Jesus to be true? Well, here's where he starts. Have a look at verse 30 to 32. It talks about his connection to the Father. We shouldn't be surprised at this. He's been talking about this the whole way through. What's he doing? Well, you could be forgiven at this point for thinking that Jesus is actually giving evidences for why the Jews can trust him. Um, it's, it kind of seems like that's what he's doing because you've got words in there like bearing witness and testimony. And you need to know that Jesus is going to get onto that, but I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. Uh, the key verse in this section is verse 31, which is on the screen there. I wonder what you think Jesus is saying there. Well, I think he's saying the same thing he's been saying in the previous verses. Uh, he and the Father are one. They're tight. Um, what he's saying is, is, Jesus is saying is, if I ever step out on my own and I say something the Father is not saying, I'm not true. You can't trust me. That's actually what he says. And the question is, does Jesus ever do that? Does he ever branch out and say something that the Father's not saying? Never does. Never ever does and Jesus is saying because of that you can trust that he's speaking truly he speaks in line with what his father says former life I was a manual arts teacher you know there's this saying that we have sometimes where we say something is straight and true and I would go into uh, my manual arts classes and I'd be teaching and I'd walk up to a a student and they'd have a line on their wood that was not straight and true all right? It just wasn't. And so what would I say to, uh, to the student? I'd say, that's not straight. You need to go and get something that's straight. Either get a ruler or get an extruded aluminium piece that's a straight edge and then put your pencil against the ruler or the straight edge and draw a straight and true line. That's what I'd say to them. And you need to know that just like a pencil that runs along a straight and true straight edge, a ruler or an extruded piece of aluminium Jesus is straight and true in line with the Father all the time, every single time, no exceptions. So you can trust that what he says is true. You can trust that. Number two, Jesus starts to crack into some evidence here. Now have a look at verse 33 to 36 in your Bibles there. He appeals to John the Baptist. Um, he appeals to the first witness, to Jesus, uh, the one who bore testimony to him uh, John was the one that was sent to bear witness to the light uh, John 1 verse 6 to 7 there was a man sent from God whose name was John he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all may believe through him the idea of John coming is that people would believe in Jesus and be saved and so Jesus is saying here John the Baptist bore testimony to me and it actually stirred up a bunch of messianic expectation people were waiting for this hero to come and John was pointing to him you know, there was this delegation of priests and Levites that were sent from Jerusalem to John the Baptist and John the Baptist bore testimony to who Jesus was to them. John the Baptist bore public testimony. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He did that publicly. But do you know what Jesus says here? He doesn't need that witness from John the Baptist. Look at verse 36. The testimony I have, 
is greater than that of John. Go back to verse 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from men, but I say these things so that you may be saved. What's Jesus saying? I don't need John the Baptist's testimony. You need it. (laughs) People get saved because John the Baptist bears testimony to Jesus. Now, what's this testimony that Jesus talks about that is more powerful than John the Baptist? Well, number three. Some of you are going, this is a 3.7. We're going to get through this real quick today. And it will be quick, but not quite. It's going to be more than three today. The Father's works. Have a look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. What's Jesus saying? The stuff that he's doing bears testimony to the fact that he's of heavenly origin. You know, sometimes we can think about God as the stern one in the Old Testament and Jesus is kind of the New Testament nice guy. You can't do that. You must not ever do that because Jesus and the Father, remember, are always completely aligned. They're always completely aligned. So when we look at the works of Jesus, what are we looking at? Well, we're looking at healings, miracles, the ministry that he does. We could just go on and on. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that all of those works are actually the works of the Father. And the Jews got to see and hear them. If you go a little bit further in the Gospel of John to John chapter 14, Jesus says this. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. All right? The works that were going on in Jesus that he was doing was the Father's work inside of him. All right, just to trick you, this is point three as well. Okay. The scriptures. Go down to verse 37 to 40. Just have a look at it. You search the scriptures, verse 39, because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life now this is a particularly disturbing section of scripture all right because it actually cashes out the problem with people and the people in question are kind of church guys right this is scary These are not rat bags who want to sneak in on a loophole. They're fine, upstanding people who are serious about their faith. It could be you or I. And what Jesus says to them is something that could be said to us today. Is it can look like you're in. It can sound like you're in. You can say that you're in and not be in. All right? You know, they seem so right, yet they're so wrong. And what we actually start to see here as we go through is is some of the deeper contours that are required to be able to prove that Jesus is true. It's actually getting more personal. You know, in verse 37 and 38, Jesus says the reason why they never got the Father in the Old Testament is because they don't get Jesus, and Jesus and the Father are so tied. And then he goes on to talk about the way that they read scripture. And verse 39 to 40 is the key. It's up on the screen there. 
Now, I remember being at a Christian thing a bunch of years ago, all right? And I was sitting there um, being part of this Christian event that was going on where people were talking about the Bible a whole bunch. And I want to just say, I, I love the Bible. I think the Bible is authoritative. I stand by every word of our church statement of faith that talks about the authority and the inspiration of Scripture. I think we should read it and memorize it. We should meditate on it regularly. But as I sit listening to these people talk, as I sat listening to these people talk about it, the following thought popped into my mind. I think these people have more of a relationship with the Bible than they do with Jesus. And I thought, ah, that can't be right. I wonder whether you've been in a situation like that. So I sat on it at this event. I thought about it, chewed over it as they were talking. Eventually, I turned to my mate next to me and I said, and this is a controversial thing to say, and I'm just going to throw a few caveats in after it, but I turned to my mate next to me and I said, do you think that there's such a thing as Bible idolatry? And, you know, he turned back to me and he said, yep, I think you can turn anything into an idol. See, idols most of the time are not bad things. They're good things that become too prominent. Now, some of you might have a car crash going on inside of your head at the moment. (laughs) All right? And you could be forgiven for that. But let me just say this. We call the Bible God's word, right? It's weird to disconnect someone's word from the person. True? It's weird to actually do that. It's natural to keep someone's word and the person connected. Now, you might go to someone at the end of the day today and you just go, Peter actually said there could be a thing, such a thing as Bible idolatry, right? Now, you're not just saying the words that I said, you're actually connecting what I've said to the person. It's natural and normal to keep them together. So the question is, is there, can you envisage a possibility where someone's word and the person get disconnected? Well, I, I think it can happen in the church. And I don't, I'm not saying, some of you go, okay, well, I'm not reading the Bible anymore. That's not what I'm saying, all right? I'm just saying keep the word of God connected to God. Now, what you actually see here in this passage is, uh, I think that's exactly what happened in this passage. Um, there was quite a well-known Jewish philosopher sage from Jesus' time called Hillel, and he said this. He said, the more study of the law, the more life. And that if a man gains for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. You know, there's a kind of reading of Scripture by the Jews here that think that the words themselves in a superstitious kind of way, had life in themselves without them actually being connected to the person of God. You know, and if if you start thinking about Scripture where um, God's people get superstitious ideas about power being inherent in something rather than power being there because it's connected to the person, one of the places you can end up with is 1 Samuel 4. There's this story where the army of Israel have been whacked by their enemies and they all get together and put their heads together and go, what have we been doing wrong? Why did we get whacked? 
And the committee decides, you know what we need to do? We need to get the Ark of the Covenant and just march that out the front because that's going to get it done for us. What are they saying? We didn't have our lucky charm. If we have our lucky charm, we'll be okay. So they march out the Ark of the Covenant. They get whacked again. A bunch of people die and the Ark of the Covenant gets stolen. That's what happens. And I just want to suggest to you today that it's possible to have a, to approach Scripture in a superstitious kind of way like the Jews did. The Bible is a powerful word. But it's not a powerful word in and of itself. It's a powerful word because it's God's word. Because it's connected to him. And what, what I think this actually means for us is that whenever you approach God or even God's word and it becomes a means to an end, you're in trouble. Because God and his word is not a means to your own ends. Now, the Bible is not something that you go to in order to make your life go right. Do you see the problem? If that's what it's about, we're going to run aground. It's not the point. You know, I I want to say again, it doesn't make any sense to talk about someone's word and the person completely separate from one another. It just doesn't make sense. We should talk about how someone's word and their person stays connected. And when we're talking about God, we want God's word and who he is to stay connected connected so given that I've I've hopefully given you enough caveats is here's what I think Jesus is saying in John 5 and I think he's saying it actually quite clearly is that the Bible is not an end in itself it's a means to an end and the end is Jesus that's what it is you're meant to see Jesus in it And I think if we understand that someone's word and their person ought to always stay really closely connected, then I think that we can probably be okay with this statement, right? The Jews read the scriptures with themselves in the center. They didn't read the scriptures in a personal way where they were connecting with God and connecting with Jesus. They were reading them with themselves in the center. And Jesus goes on and says, you've got you got an issue because Moses talked about me in the Bible and you're totally missing me. Uh, what, what books are written by Moses? Well, the first five. Um, when did Moses write about Jesus? Well, we've got uh, the Proto-Evangelium in uh, Genesis 3, the fall of humanity, where uh, Moses writes at the first sin that someday someone's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Speaking of Jesus, we get into um, Deuteronomy and Moses' best of sermon. And um, Moses talks about, about Jesus specifically. Uh, Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him, to him you shall listen. We've got the story in uh, Numbers 21 verse 9 where the people got bitten by snakes and a snake was lifted up on a pole. And if the people looked to it, they were healed. 
Uh, Jesus said in uh, John three fourteen to 15 that he, he is the one lifted up on a pole that you can look to and be healed. You see, Moses did write about Jesus. But whenever you make God a means to your own ends, you'll miss him. You'll miss him. Every single time. You notice what's going on here in this uh, dialogue, a dialogue, monologue is probably a better word, actually. This monologue that Jesus is having is that it's progressively getting more and more personal. Um, and Jesus is pressing in on them more and more. Here's point four, which is actually five, but don't, don't be confused about that. Verse 41 to 44. Jesus starts talking about their unfaithfulness to him. He talks about the importance of being true to him. Let's just read verse 41 to 44. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You see what's going on here? There's misplaced love here. There's something they don't love, which they should, and something they are loving, which they shouldn't. Verse 42. What are they not loving? Well, they don't love God. But they do love themselves, don't they? And they do love the glory that comes from other people. And you know, Jesus is saying here, he's going, you can't do both. You can't love the glory that comes from other people and love the glory that comes from me. So here's a question. What does Jesus mean when he asks this question in John 5, 44, if you still got it open there? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? What does Jesus mean by glory? Well, you know what Jesus means? He means esteem and praise of other people. You see this developed later on in, uh, in John's Gospel in chapter 12 where Jesus criticises them again. Um, sorry, John makes this comment about them. He says, for they love the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God. Now, what, what, what do we mean? What do we mean by this? Well, here's a word for you that captures a bit of it. Affirmation. They love the affirmation that came from people more than the affirmation that came from God. Here's another word that um, you may be familiar with. Um, they wanted people's approval more than they wanted God's approval. Now, this cuts probably a little bit closer to the bone because uh, all of us here, at one time or another, are, are given to wanting the approval of people. And I want to say to you that in the moment that you want the approval of people the most, you're not loving God. Because that's what Jesus is saying. You're loving something else. And I'll tell you something, the approval of other people is brittle and shaky at best, isn't it? Have you noticed how much it shifts? The Bible calls this um, desire for the approval of people a fear of man. And um, I've, I've, I've run through these 10 questions uh, before in the project, but I'm going to do it again because there's a bunch of you who are new and most of them are written by Ed Welsh. Um, 
It's all part of the service that we deliver here, just to help you to see if you've got any fear of man kicking around in your life. You can thank me later. If you've got a piece of paper, you might even want to, um, to, uh, to crack it out. Um, maybe you have to write these questions down, but maybe answer them. How do, you, you know, how do you know you've got a problem with approval and that you want approval from other people? All right, here's question one. Have you struggled with peer pressure? What people think, what they say, being accepted by that person, being approved by that group of people. Ever struggle with that? Are you overcommitted? You're a people pleaser? Those closest to you say you say yes too much? Don't say no enough? Are embarrassment or shyness common for you? This one's one's a kick-in. Do you second-guess decisions because of what people might think? Number five. Do other people often make you angry, depressed, or drive you crazy? Everyone's going, yeah, they drive me crazy. Do you avoid people? Do you take too much responsibility for other people? Are you too committed to being nice, keeping peace and avoiding conflict? When you compare yourself to other people, do you feel good about yourself? Have you ever been too timid to share your faith in Jesus because others might think you are an idiot? Folks, I want to say to you this morning that if you answer yes to too many of those, you're in slavery. We don't want to become absolutely rude, obnoxious people and not pay attention to the way other people respond to us. But if this... If, these, if you answer yes to a bunch of those, you're in a kind of slavery. And Jesus wants you to be out of that. Jesus didn't call you to be in slavery, to the fear of other people's opinions. What's the alternative? Well, there is an affirmation and praise which comes from God. You know, here's, here's, the, um, here's the alternative. Do you live for the well done from other people, which shifts and changes and goes all over the place, that you can be a slave to, or do you live for the well done, good and faithful servant? Do you live for that? That's the one that matters, right? Seriously, when Jesus comes back, On judgment day, that person that you're afraid of, the person whose opinion that you wanted to win over, they're going to mean almost nothing compared to Jesus. A speck. Every single thing that you've done in this life 
that you've done for the well done, good and faithful servant from Jesus will make every kind of sense that you can imagine. People will stand around and just go, oh, that was a bad call, you know. I just criticised you for something that you did there and you're actually doing it for Jesus and now Jesus is noticing it and it's going public. That's going to be a good day, isn't it? Because you don't always get the approval of other people. Who knows what I'm talking about? And you feel like a goose sometimes when you're following Jesus. And sometimes there's a big cost to it. But I'll tell you what, Jesus is not going to leave you defrauded. On judgment day, everything is going to be seen plainly and all of the deeds that you've done in service to Jesus will be seen plainly. And for all of those that you've done for him, where you lived for his affirmation and his approval, and I'm not talking about in an ultimate sense in terms of sins. We can't win that back. I'm talking about the one that says that you're okay. Who's the one that says to you that you're okay? And you, you, <laughs> you need to orient yourself around Jesus being the one that says that you're okay. Don't get stuck in the winds and waves of other people's opinions or perhaps even your own opinion of yourself. For some of you, you are one of the other people in your life. You listen to the stuff that you do, you watch the stuff that you do, you critique it. If you value the esteem and praise of others more than God's, you'll never love him rightly. I want to say to you that um, Jesus says here in John, to see there in verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. And I want to say to you this morning, that is really, really, really good news. Jesus doesn't need or even pay attention to the affirmation or praise or glory that comes from people. Do you know why that's good news for you? Well, what if he did? What if he did actually pay attention to the glory and the affirmation and the praise that comes from people? What, what if Jesus gave in and cowed to the opinions and praise of people? What then? What would that say about his character? What would it say about who's in control? Who's the most powerful? What would it say about his affections? About what he loves the most? What would it say about his father? Would he have still gone to the cross if he cared about people's praise and esteem more than the father's? Well, not on your life. You know, the hinge in Mark is where Peter steps up and says, no, you can't go to the cross. What if Jesus at that point goes, oh, okay, well, maybe you're right, Peter. I don't want to lose, you know, your approval of me, so I'm going to go along with that. Do you know what happens if Jesus does that? None of you get saved. No one gets saved. Do you want to be saved? Do you? Well, you need a God who's able to stand up and is not going to cow to the approval, the affirmation and praise of people. So be like him. That's a good place to be. Not only did it save you, but it actually purchases for you the opportunity for you to not be enslaved by it. Whose praise matters to you most? All right. 
Here's where I'm going to finish. Maybe the, the music team can come up. I want you to imagine um, you're talking to a friend of yours and they said something which happens to me a bit uh, and I'm sure it's happened to you. Um, for one reason or another, you're going to meet up with someone that they know. And, and this person, this friend of yours, because you've never met this other person, this friend of yours going, that, that guy's a really good guy. He's a really, really good guy. And, and they started running through all these reasons why they're a good guy so that when you meet up with them, you'll trust them, right? So they go, seriously, that guy, he's just like his dad. His dad was a legend. You've heard about his dad. And he, he was just like his dad. Everyone thought his dad was great. The son's just like him. That guy's just like him. And then the person, your friend, just starts bearing witness to this, uh, this guy that you're going to meet. And, and, and your friend is bearing witness and saying how good the person is that you're going to be meeting. And, and, they, and as part of that whole thing, they run through a whole bunch of things which are evidence to you about how trustworthy they are, right? It's, it's like they just talk about all these things that have happened. It's like when you meet this guy, you just want to trust him. It's going to be really good because he's, he's done this, that, and the, the other thing. And then he, he even gets out, it's, it's weird, right? But he gets out some emails that the guy had written your friend. And he goes, read these. Have a look at these emails. Here's my question. What would you need? to have the most profound experience of them being trustworthy and true. If you had all of that, what would you need to have the most profound experience of them being trustworthy and true? Do you, do you know what you need to do? You need to trust the person. That's what you need to do. You have to get off the fence, stop standing at a distance and put your trust in them. Because at that point, it's not just that your friend said that they were a good person. Now you, you know that they are. You see, this is how you prove a person to be true. You actually entrust yourself to them. You remember I started at the beginning this morning and said, um, if you want to close the deal on whether God is true or not, then the way you should tackle it needs to be in keeping with who God is and who you are. Well, God's a person, you're a person, and the way that you close the deal on God being true is by trusting in Him. That's how you do it. This is, this is what the Jews didn't do. They stood at a distance. They loved other things more than, than God. And you know the, uh, the, the statement of Jesus in this section, which just kind of rattles around in my head, is this one. Uh, in verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And I'd ask you this morning, have you come to him to have life? Like to him? Have you placed your trust in him? Are you ongoingly coming to him for life? Have you proved Jesus to be true? I have. Who else has? Have you proved him to be true? Yeah, you have, right? 
It's not less than arguments. It's not less than information, but it's just so much more than that, right? We're not just saying some things we know about someone. It's actually saying we know someone. Well, here's the question that I want to leave you with. Do you ongoingly prove Jesus to be true? See, that's about tomorrow. That's about 10 minutes' time. It's about 10 hours' time. It's trusting in him and proving him over and over and over again that he's true.